TED Audio Collective. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Hi, I'm Adam Grant. I think about work a lot. That's why I wanted to tell you about Canva Docs, which will help you expertly craft your work communications. They have an AI text generator built in called MagicWrite, powered by OpenAI. You can generate any text you want. Job descriptions, marketing plans, sales proposals. Just start with a prompt, and you'll have a draft in seconds. Tweak your draft, and you're done. Try Canva Docs with an AI text generator built in at canva.com. Designed for work. Got a business problem? There's a TED Talk for that. Stay updated on everything business on TED Business, a podcast hosted by Columbia Business School professor Modupe Akinola. Every week, she'll introduce you to leaders with unique insights on work, answering questions like, how do four-day work weeks work? To, will a machine ever take my job? Get some surprising answers on TED Business wherever you listen to podcasts. Hey, everyone. It's Adam Grant. Welcome back to Rethinking, my podcast on the science of what makes us tick. I'm an organizational psychologist, and I'm taking you inside the minds of fascinating people to explore new thoughts and new ways of thinking. My guest today is the legendary social psychologist, Elliot Aronson. He's a pioneer of the study of cognitive dissonance, the uncomfortable tension we feel when our attitudes and actions conflict. He co-authored a book on dissonance that I think should be required reading for all humans. Mistakes were made, but not by me. He also wrote The Social Animal, an award-winning textbook beloved by generations of psychology students, now in its 12th edition. Elliot is the only person ever to win the triple crown of awards from the American Psychological Association for research, teaching, and writing. And he won the William James Award for Lifetime Achievement. He's 91, and I'd love to be as sharp any day as he is today. There's so much I'm excited to talk about today. Uh, Elliot, you're a legendary teacher. I know that generations of students have admired your wisdom and also your kindness. And one of the things that you're famous for doing is inviting or maybe challenging your TAs to give a guest lecture. Why? I love teaching the introductory social psychology course. And it's always been a huge course. Like at the University of Texas, we would have about 600 students in there. And even at University of California, Santa Cruz, we would get 300, 350 students. And I always thought it would be a nice introduction for my TAs. They were leading sections. And I thought if they could get a chance to address a huge audience, it would sort of defang the entire process. The undergraduates are very empathic of the graduate students who may be a little bit nervous at the beginning, and that shows, and the students are with them, you know. It's a very nice experience. 
Well, it's something I started doing after after seeing that you had role modeled it, and our PhD students just raved about it as a very meaningful challenge and also a, a chance for them to to connect with the students on a different level. Mm-hmm. Now, I was reading a little bit about some of the students who had gone through this TA experience with you, and I came across a hilarious story from a former TA, Larry White. Yeah. It was a rainy day. And uh, there I am in the auditorium waiting for Larry, and he shows up and he shows me his backside where he slipped in the mud and landed right on his ass, and he's covered <laughs> with mud. And he said, I, I, don't, I don't know what to do. You know, if the students ever saw my backside, they would be laughing at me. And, and I said, no, 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 what you have to do is show them your backside and tell them exactly what happened and explain to them that you were nervous about the lecture. And and that's one of the reasons why you were distracted and you slipped and fell. And then you turn around and show them your backside and they will love you for it. And uh, <laughs> he did that and it worked exactly that way. The students gave him a standing ovation and I think it was partly because of that pratfall. There's a great um, coda to the story, which is, he said a student came up to thank him afterward, and that's how he met his wife, Hester. <laughs> I did know that, and I had forgotten, but it's a, it is a, a wonderful coda, and it, I happen to know that it's a marriage that has lasted for quite a while. You know, I think about you, Elliot, every time I make a mistake. I, I think your brilliant paper on the pratfall effect really changed the way that I think about mistakes. And I guess a, a personal example was, I remember uh, right when I was getting ready to interview for a job at Wharton, uh, I was invited to speak at a conference here about a month beforehand. And I arrived in Philadelphia and realized I had forgotten to pack pants. Like All I had was pajama pants and sweatpants. And it was, I think it was 10 p.m., and my talk was at 8 a.m. the next morning. And I, there was nothing I could do, except I had a cousin who was in school here. He was bigger than me, but I borrowed his pants. And then I walked <laughs> in to give the talk, and I opened, thinking of you, with the story of how I forgot my pants, and <laughs> I really wanted to apologize for how ridiculous I looked. I felt like a clown. And it was the warmest audience reception I had ever gotten at an academic conference. Unpack this for me. What did, what did your research show about why this is effective? Well, what we think it showed is that if a person seems really terrific to begin with, he may be a little intimidating. He may make the people who are evaluating him feel not so good by comparison. But when he makes a pratfall, when he falls down or forgets his pants or something like that, it makes people feel closer to him. Now, the important thing to notice is that a mediocre person who has a pratfall simply seems that much more mediocre for having the pratfall. One of the things that I, I took away from this research was that Although we're, we're often encouraged to, to humanize ourselves and to show vulnerability, we shouldn't forget to, to establish our competence. And it's a lot easier to get away with showing vulnerability if you're successful or if you have high status or if you have a track record of achievement. It also reminds me of a, a recent paper led by Alison Wood Brooks 
where a whole series of experiments showed that if you're successful, revealing your failures on the path to success, and even some of your current failures, uh, reduces malicious envy. So people are more likely to admire you as opposed to maybe maybe being out to get you. I think that's that's probably true, yeah. I'm curious about how you think about the pratfall effect today in a world that seems to place conflicting pressures on people. On the one hand, we're supposed to be perfect and flawless. On the other hand, I think a lot of people prize authenticity and vulnerability. Uh, do you have other thoughts on the differences between a good pratfall and a bad pratfall? My main feeling is one should never fake a pratfall. You know, if you forgot your pants on purpose <laughs> and they and for some reason the audience had a clue that that might have happened, I think that would be a disaster. You don't want to fake it. Chances are we all have our vulnerabilities and it's good to reveal them in the normal course of events without the motivation to appear human. I know so many people who take pride in being rational, but what you taught me is we're actually much better at rationalizing. Yeah. I'd love to hear, how did you realize that? When did you first come to that discovery? I think we are rational beings. We are capable of rational behavior, but much more powerful is our desire to rationalize, our need to rationalize. Cognitive dissonance reduction is neutral. It's a tool, and it's, it has some uses. It helps us sleep at night. You make an important decision, like a financial decision, like what kind of car to buy or what kind of house to buy or anything like that, and it's a big decision. It's an important decision. And if it's not perfect, then you're, oh, gee, should I have bought the other one? And distance reduction plugs in. You convince yourself it is the best house or the best car or the best whatever, the best woman that you married. Once you, you start reducing distance, you can sleep at night, and that makes you a healthier person. It can also be used for self-deception. It can be used um, to justify a war and to justify sending more troops and more troops and more troops as you surge the war, which is going to end up very badly anyway, and people get killed. So when a person makes a mistake, a, a bad mistake, a, a cognitive blunder, or causes pain to an innocent bystander for no good reason, I think that we try to justify that because the most powerful dissonance occurs when I do something that goes against my own self-concept, that belies my own self-concept. And that's the, the irony of it, that in order to make myself feel better, I then set that person up for even greater harm because I've now convinced myself that he deserved all the nasty things I had done to him in the past. That, that's one of the dynamics I want to talk more about. Um, I remember in, in Mistakes Were Made, but not by me, uh, you wrote about some chilling examples of self-justification self to reduce dissonance. I was particularly struck by prosecutors who refused to recognize DNA evidence that exonerated people they had they'd put in prison. I mean, that's, that's unfathomable. That's the exquisite irony is that the prosecutor 
who refuses to reopen the case. He's not refusing to reopen the case because he's a terrible person. He's refusing to reopen the case be because he thinks of himself as a good person and a competent person who would never, ever send the wrong man to prison. So if he sent somebody to prison for 10 years and then DNA evidence shows up that could exonerate that person, he refuses to look at it because he sees himself as a good and competent person who would never send the wrong man to prison for 10 years. Every time I hear stories like this, I want to sit people down and say, listen, just because you're a good person doesn't mean you're not capable of doing a bad thing. The mind is a terrific thing. That's part of what makes it so exciting to be a social psychologist, to be able to study these things and figure out the underlying reasons why people do things that would seem bizarre without a good theory that, that helps explain how that works. You're reminding me of when I was early in grad school, Phoebe Ellsworth said her definition of social psychology was all the forces that ruin your life every day. <laughs> That's very good. That's very good. Or, or enhance our lives every day. What we've been talking about is something that we could call a vicious circle. And it can work in the other direction also. You do somebody a favor. One of my students, David Landy, did this as an experiment. You do oh, somebody... this is Jekyll and Landy. I love that paper. It's a, it's a great paper, and it shows that what's important is the giving. If you do a favor for someone, and you don't particularly like that person or dislike that person, to begin with, you, in effect, you're asking yourself, well, how come I did this great favor for that person? He must be a terrific guy. I think I see some really nice things about him. He really deserves the favor I gave him. Really deserves all the things I did for him. And therefore, it increases the probability that you'll do nice things for him in the future. And that is one of the underlying dynamics of the Jigsaw Classroom, which is a series of experiments I once did several years ago. Which I hope we're going to get to. The The idea that you, you don't have to like someone to do them a favor, but after you've done a favor for them, you're likely to convince yourself that they're worth liking. Yeah. It's, it's, such, a, it's such a fun example of how sometimes dissonance can actually lead to good things, not just bad things, which yeah. I want to ask you more about. But bef before we go to the bright side, the dynamic that you raised around victim blaming um, and the vicious cycle that ensues it feels very timely. I think outgroup dehumanization seems to be on the rise lately. We've seen it with political polarization yeah. and you know people on opposite sides of the political, well, uh, of the liberal conservative divide failing to see the humanity in each other. How does dissonance reduction help us understand this? I always think of Stanley Milgram's obedience experiment as a, a perfect instantiation of that process of one step at a time, because I think most of your listeners probably know about that obedience experiment where a person, one person was giving another person a series of electric shocks as part of an experiment allegedly on learning. 
and these were not real electric shocks, but the shock giver thought they were real. And every time the person who was supposed to be learning something made a mistake, he raised it by 15 or 20 volts and, and it got higher and higher. And the way I view that experiment is that each step was justified. And if you give the guy 80 volts or 90 volts or 120 volts, what's to prevent you from giving him 135 volts? Because that's not much different from 120. And so one step at a time, you can be giving that person a shock level that you think might be lethal. And people are capable of doing that. As you know, in Milgram's experiments, we replicated many, many times, about two out of three people went all the way to the end, which was over 400 volts, which, that they thought they were giving to a person who was complaining that he had a bad heart. Quite a powerful demonstration. If you had started the experiment at 400 volts, people say, no way, yeah. absolutely not. Exactly, exactly. Imagine going, going up to someone and saying, I'd like you to give that innocent person 400 volts of electricity. You look at them as if you were crazy, but two out of three people, one step at a time, justifying each improvement, each <laughs> improvement, that's a strange <laughs> use of the word improvement, each increase in voltage, because it's not that different from the previous one, and you look at that and you can see that that is a model for what seems to us as bizarre behavior and how it can come about. Um, it's a replication of the outgroup can always be vilified and we can always justify harming them in really important ways, whether the outgroup happens to be Israelis or happens to be Palestinians. It happens, and it's still happening, and it is part of human nature, but it, it's human nature that can be overcome by tuning into the possibilities of the virtuous circle, which could reverse some of the thinking, some of the, the rationalizing and justification that goes into the vicious circle, which produces all this negative stereotyping and negative behavior. And we're, we're doing it in this country. Thinking about the virtuous cycles, what does the psychology of cognitive dissonance teach us about how to, how to fight this kind of victim blaming and dehumanization? And, and are there insights about how we can solve it? I go back to some of the research I did when we developed the notion of the jigsaw classroom. I was living in Austin, Texas at the time. I was teaching at the University of Texas when the Texas schools were desegregated finally in 1971. Most of us thought, gee, that will lead to great outcomes, a reduction in prejudice, because if people are segregated in schools and residentially, black kids, white kids, Mexican-American kids, don't get to see much of each other and therefore they can build up the stereotypes. But if you bring them together, it should result in good things. But we should have known better because it depends on how you bring them together. And when the Austin schools were desegregated, the kids from minority 
residential areas were simply bussed into the schools the, of the white middle class, and they had prior, their prior preparation was not very good, and the classroom is a highly competitive situation where the minority kids were guaranteed to lose. They didn't know the answer when the teacher would stand in front of the room and ask a question. They tended not to participate after a while, which tended to exacerbate whatever existing stereotypes were there. And we were called in by the school superintendent. I was asked if I had any ideas as to how we could change things, because there were fistfights breaking out. There was a lot of aggression. <laughs> Far from being a good thing, it looked like desegregating the schools only brought people together who were going to fight with each other. And what we did was, on the spot, my graduate students and I invented a situation which forced kids to cooperate with each other. And we called it the Jigsaw Classroom because the way it was set up, we would have uh, small groups of five or six people, different races and, and genders, as diverse as we could possibly make each group. And they each had one piece of a puzzle, like if it was the biography of Eleanor Roosevelt, they each had a separate section of her life from childhood all the way to old age. And the only access you would have to the entire thing would be to listen to each kid report on his section. To make a long story very short, it forced kids to listen to each other. It forced kids to pay attention to each other. And within six weeks, that group was functioning like a really good basketball team, where it didn't matter who put the ball in the hoop, you pass the ball around until you find the open man. The results were spectacular on the initial experiments, and every time we've tried to replicate it, it's come out in a very much the same way. Prejudice went down, liking for school went up, absenteeism decreased, and general empathy increased because the individual kids, their individual differences became important. I've always thought that part of what's clever about your jigsaw classroom design is that there's not just a common goal. You actually have to rely on each other and help each other to achieve it. I like that too. In a jigsaw group, each kid had one assignment, like Eleanor Roosevelt's early years. We had, took time and everybody with Eleanor Roosevelt's early years met together outside of their jigsaw group, but in what was called an expert group. And they went over the material together. They shared it with each other. They talked about ways they would have of presenting it so that kids who might have been, had a little more difficulty with the presentation were learning from the, the other people who had the same paragraph to report. And therefore, when they went back into their jigsaw group, they were armed that would make it less likely that they would drop that fly ball. I was thinking about the Jigsaw classroom recently when I was reading a paper by Shannon White, Juliana Schroeder, and Jane Risen, where they studied uh, Israeli and Palestinian teenagers at Seeds of Peace camp. 
which I'm sure you've been familiar with for a long time. And I was I was stunned to read that just sharing a dialogue group, having that common activity, made participants 15 times more likely to develop a close friendship. And it seems like you anticipated that finding. It was always the hope. I wouldn't even call it the anticipation. It was the hope. And it, it does work that way, especially with kids. The younger the kids, the easier it is to achieve that before the prejudices have hardened. Right. Uh, I, I was riveted by your finding that the people we like most are not necessarily the people we liked all along, but the people we started out disliking and then grew to like. Is that part of what's going on in the Jigsaw case? The mind is an interesting thing, and there are various theoretical ways to get at what's happening, but there's a consistency to all of that stuff, that these things are all interrelated in interesting ways that come to light afterwards. After a talk I gave at an APA convention, and a young woman came up to me afterwards and said, have you ever read Benjamin Franklin's autobiography? And I said, yeah, a long time ago, 30 years ago or something. And she said, you ought to read it again. He anticipated that experiment, the Jekyllandy experiment. The rare book, <laughs> the loan, yes. Sure enough, it's right in there. He was in the Pennsylvania State Legislature there was an older guy who seemed to have taken a disliking to him and was gainsaying any idea that Franklin had, and he wanted to win him over. And he heard that the guy had a rare book that Franklin might be interested in, and he asked him if he could borrow the book. And the guy lent it to him, and Franklin read the book, loved it, returned it to him in a week, and after that, the guy became a lot friendlier. And Franklin concluded, <laughs> if you can get someone to do you a favor, they're going to be your friend. I hadn't thought about that, certainly not consciously, when Chuckman Landy and I were designing that experiment. I, I always think about that and, and think, okay, but what, what happens if the person says no? Uh, has that damaged the relationship? I would think so. <laughs> you really want to make sure they don't say no. So the key was the right ask. Yeah. I want to, Elliot, I want to come back to your point that it's much easier to overcome prejudice with kids than adults. This is obviously a major challenge right now. I, I've watched a lot of people on social media bullying and shaming other people for how they're using their platforms. I've been thinking a lot about your work on the psychology of self-persuasion. I wondered if you could talk a little bit about you know, particularly with adults, how you would activate self-persuasion so that people were likely to open their own minds as opposed to maybe shutting them down the way that, that most are, are trying to persuade right now. Everything we've been talking about so far is self-persuasion. We can put people in a situation where they're motivated to persuade themselves of a, that a particular thing is true. And that, and that, that results in a much more powerful persuasion than if I'm trying to sell you something, and we, we get that all the time on our email. <laughs> Look here, we've got this new thing for you from Amazon or from 
God knows what publication wants us to subscribe to. And we just learn to ignore that attempt to persuade us. But to make a person, to put a person in a situation which is usually a dissonance situation where the motivation is to persuade yourself that a particular thing is true because that's helpful to you, that really works. And in some of the work that we've done, for example, when during the height of the AIDS epidemic, when there was no cure for AIDS, they didn't even know what was causing it. And public health people realized that condoms, using condoms if you're sexually active, using condoms is the best way to protect yourself and to protect your partner, but people weren't using them. How do you get people to use condoms? Well, one of the things that I thought about doing was using self-persuasion via cognitive dissonance. And the way to do that, we developed a paradigm that we called the hypocrisy paradigm, but I could just as well have named it the integrity paradigm. Because what we did was we got sexually active college students to create and deliver a short lecture that was going to be played to high school students in a sex education class. Okay, that was the cover story. And they talked about how important it was to use condoms. And the interesting thing is college students believed that condoms were important to use. They understood that. It's just that they weren't using them. Only about 17% of sexually active college students were using condoms. We got them to deliver that, to make that videotape advocating the use of condoms every single time you have sex. And then afterwards, and we interviewed all of the students, but for half of them, we got them to think about whether they themselves were using condoms. So we made salient the fact that for many of them, for most of them, almost all of them, in that condition, they had just gotten through preaching something, which we then rubbed their nose in the fact that they <laughs> themselves were not practicing. Okay, made them aware of their own hypocrisy. And people have a great desire to see themselves as people of integrity. That's one of the things people think. We all think that we're smarter, that we're smarter than the average person, that we're more competent than the average person, that we're more moral than the average person, and that we have more integrity than the average person. Now you're confronting some people with the fact they're behaving hypocritically and they want to get back to to behaving with integrity. And how do you get back to behaving with integrity? You start using condoms. And that's what we found, that we found a sharp increase in the use of condoms. And six months later, when a poll was conducted by us, but it seemed to be coming from someone else, Six months later, the people in the hypocrisy condition were still using condoms. That was self-persuasion rather than the persuasion that was being used 
by the public health center at my university, for example, giving lectures, showing videos about using condoms, giving out pamphlets, all of that stuff, increased the use of condoms by about 2%, from 17% to 19%, whereas we were getting more than 60% using condoms six months later. Wow. That was powerful data. I took two things away from that research. The, f the first lesson was that if you want to convince somebody, you should get them involved in making the argument that you want them to believe, right. not just telling them the argument you want them to believe. Right, right. And then the, the second was that we should be careful about the arguments we make because when you're persuading someone else, the person you're most likely to convince is yourself. That's absolutely right. Are you up for a lightning round with some short questions? I'm up for it. What is the worst piece of advice you've ever gotten? <laughs> the worst piece of advice I've ever gotten was don't go to college, go to work. Wow, I'm glad you ignored that one. Support your mother. Yeah, it was right after my father died. I was a junior in high school. My brother was already in college. So my aunts and uncles were saying, well, Elliot, when he graduates from high school, can go work for the Ford Motor Company on the assembly line. And the pay is really good. You can support his mother that way, etc. And I looked at it and I thought, hey, that was a pretty good idea. I'd be making a couple of hundred dollars a week. And my brother said, screw that. Elliot's going to college and uh, we can handle it. And that was the end of it. My brother, he really did save me from a life working for the Ford Motor Company. Is there a favorite psychology book that you'd like to recommend? Either of the Nisbet Ross books. I like them a lot. What is something you've rethought lately? <laughs> I have to admit, I haven't rethought very much lately. I guess when you get to be an old guy, you're busy collecting the thoughts you do have rather than changing much. I don't think I've rethought very much. Elliot, is there a question you have for me? How does it feel to be at a, a psychologist in a business school rather than in a liberal arts department? What are the advantages? What are the disadvantages? Oh, I don't think anyone's asked me that before. When I got to Michigan for for my doctorate in psychology, I wanted to be an organizational psychologist, and I, I felt like the more basic scholars were sort of looking down their nose at me. Like, why aren't you doing neuroscience or physiology work? Why do you care about people's jobs and, and doing applied research? And coming to a business school has obviously changed that. I think there's an expectation that we're going to do practical work. Uh, that was one of the big points of inspiration that I took from your work was seeing how you went into the real world and said, I want to see if I can improve people's lives using the tools of psychology. Interesting, yeah. If you were to make your Mount Rushmore of psychology, who would be on it? There'd be Kurt Lewin and uh, Leon Festinger, for sure. I would put in B.F. Skinner, and uh, just for diversity, maybe Carl Rogers. Um, Paul Meal. What's the idea from psychology that has most been useful in your life outside of dissonance? <laughs> what Gordon Allport wrote in Nature of Prejudice about what needs to happen 
in order for prejudice to be reduced. He actually listed all of the things that went into the jigsaw classroom. It wasn't just bringing kids together in the same school. It was sanctioned by authority, working together toward a common, to achieve a common goal. All of that stuff, I think, was really an important um, position that he took way back in 1954. And people ignored it because desegregation really didn't work the way it was supposed to. I guess one thing I'm curious about is, how do you deal with cognitive dissonance personally? Me, if I'm making an important decision, especially one that involves other people uh, and could cause pain to other people, I really have to ask myself, is this something I really believe in or am I simply acting in a way that justifies a previous decision and helps me feel better about myself? I think knowing about dissonance and knowing how susceptible I am to reducing dissonance and then finding out later that I was doing that, in some cases it's harmless. But in, in some cases, it could be very hurtful uh, to others. In the cases where, where other people's happiness is involved, like when I was actively teaching, uh, I, I would make a decision, do I want to work with this person or not? And if somebody who started to work with me, and they were, really weren't panning out, and uh, I had to be sure that my decisions were based on specific instances that I could document if I had to, rather than I just didn't like the guy very much or something like that. I would do a lot of questioning in advance of a decision, sort of trying out the decision one way and the other way and seeing how that made me feel, what are all the possible dissonance reduction, self-justification aspects that I really need to take into account. I would do a lot of that. When we first moved to Minneapolis and we bought a house, the first house we ever bought, and we didn't have any money. And so there were only two houses that we liked and that we could afford. And they couldn't have been more different. One was close to the university. It was my dream to live walking distance from campus so that my graduate students could come over at four o'clock in the afternoon. We could drink some scotch or coffee and, and talk research. But it didn't have much of a yard. The other one was out in the suburbs, but it had a big backyard and it was pleasant and okay. And it was near a lake. We ended up buying the house in the suburbs. And I had a lot of dissonance about that because if I was Living alone, I would have bought the one close to school. But given the fact that we had four kids, it was the best decision to make. But I still had a lot of dissonance about it. This was in early December. I was in my office and I saw an ad in the newspaper about an old town canoe used for sale that somebody was selling. And I bought the canoe, I put it on top of my car on the luggage rack, drove home in December. And Vera, my wife, was looking out the window 
of the kitchen as I drove into the driveway with the canoe on top of the car, and she burst out laughing. One might say that the canoe sat in our garage doing nothing but taking up space for six months until I could use it, but I would say it did a lot more than take up space. It helped me feel better and therefore sleep better at night about having chosen the house in the suburbs because we had this canoe. That's a great story. It's a simple thing, and yet it's really important. And we do that all the time, and we can ignore it. It doesn't matter. But there's so many dissonance reduction things that do matter, and those are the things we really have to scrutinize. And the more you know about dissonance, the less confident I am that my decisions are made for exactly the right reasons. That seems like the kind of intellectual humility we could all use more of. Okay, finally, on the personal front, I loved this note from your son, Joshua. I'm just going to read it to you and let you react. He said that you and your wife, Vera, have been really happy together for over 70 years. He says, really, they are still completely in love. When COVID hit and they had to be quarantined together, just the two of them, it was as if they were given a second honeymoon at the age of 90. So what advice do you have in this day and age about choosing a life partner, building a life together, and making love last? I don't give advice. If I were giving advice, I would say, you want to have a happy marriage that lasts? Marry Vera. (laughs) (laughs) Vera is magnificent. And it was the happiest day of my life when I met her and we became friends and Maslow hired the two of us. We were his two favorite students, mostly Vera, a little bit me. And we worked together and we fell in love. And she's beautiful, she's smart, she has serenity. I've never met anyone like her. The interesting thing to me is that when I was 20 years old, I was convinced that I would never get married. And whenever I was dating a woman, and we started to get a little bit serious with each other, I would make that announcement. I hope you realize that I'm never going to get married because (laughs) my parents were very unhappily married. I always thought of marriage as an unnatural state of affairs, to be spending your whole life with one other person and, you know, trying to keep out of each other's way and making mistakes and getting on each other's nerves and embarrassing each other. I mean, it didn't seem right to me. And then when I was 21, I met Vera. When I was 22, we got married. If I were giving advice, I would say, learn how to communicate. Learn about interpersonal communication. Learn not to judge or criticize when There are disagreements, and there will always be disagreements. You know, a lot of people will say, will think that a good marriage is one where you never argue or never disagree. Of course you're going to argue and disagree. How can two people live together without disagreeing about things? But the idea is to do it civilly and with care. And it's how you argue and how you discuss things that's really important. How you disagree. Yeah, She's my best friend. She's always been my best friend. Josh was wrong, by the way. It's only been 69 years, not 70. I've been very lucky. Lucky with the choice. 
lucky that she loved me as much as I love her, which astonishes me, and lucky that we're both relatively um, healthy in our 90s so that it's lasted a long time and will continue, I hope. That's beautifully put, and it sounds like uh, she forced you to overcome some dissonance in order to get married. She didn't do anything, you know. When I made that pronouncement to her, she just sort of smiled. She knew it wouldn't last, I think. Well, Elliot, I can't thank you enough for taking the time to share your wisdom today. I've long looked up to the way you do your work as a psychologist, a teacher, a mentor, but I think I have even greater admiration for how you live your life. Well, thank you. It was a pleasure talking to you. I really enjoyed it. I assure you the pleasure was all mine, and I can't wait to share it with our listeners. I can't wait to hear hear what I had to say. (laughs) (laughs) I think the major lesson of Elliot's work is that the world needs more rationality and less rationalizing. Rationalizing is searching for justifications after you've reached an opinion or decision. Rationality is seeking the best logic and data before you commit and staying open to changing your mind. Rethinking is hosted by me, Adam Grant, and produced by Ted with Cosmic Standard. Our team includes Colin Helms, Eliza Smith, Jacob Winnick, Asia Simpson, Samaya Adams, Michelle Quint, Ben Ben Chang, Hannah Kingsley Ma, Julia Dickerson, and Whitney Pennington Rogers. This episode was produced and mixed by Cosmic Standard. Our fact checker is Paul Durbin. Original music by Hansdale Sue and Allison Layton Brown. I, I remember reading in Not By Chance Alone that Festinger had quite a line about Maslow. We were in a bar having a drink, and he said, By the way, Elliot, how did you ever get interested in psychology? And I said, Well, I, you know, I happened to wander into this class being taught by this guy, Abraham Maslow. Maslow? Maslow was the guy who got you interested in psychology? That guy's ideas are so bad, they're not even wrong. But of course, what he meant was you couldn't test them. And he was absolutely right. Did did Maslow have an equally devastating comment on Festinger? Well, it was devastating. It wasn't quite as clever. He said, well, uh, who are you working with out there at Stanford? And I said, oh, this guy, Leon Festinger. He said, Festinger? That bastard, how can you stand him?